Hello, friends. Today I have a special guest. His name is Todd Napola. Todd Napola is an investor and real estate mogul here in Miami. And he is um, been on social media talking about his journey. And he's got a very special book that he's going to share with you guys. And we want to talk about his story. Welcome to A-List Conversations, where we have real talk with experts on how they build the skills, mindset, and network to become an A-lister, and how you can too. I'm your host, Julian Castle. Let's get down to business. So, Todd, thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm doing great, Julian. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it having you here. Um, Todd, I really want to start from your childhood. How did you grow up? How was your family? You know, I grew up in a normal middle of the road kind of family. I was lucky. You know, my parents were together. We were raised in uh, Staten Island, New York. And that was back in the day that you went into the late 70s and the 80s where there were no cell phones or internet. So, you know, kids went out and played and did what they did until the sun went down. And, you know, your parents didn't keep a track on you. They didn't have, you know, find you on apps and phones. And it was a really different time than it is today. But uh, I was always into business and things like that. So from a very young age, I was entrepreneurial in the sense that I would go when I was this big, door to door and knock on my neighbor's doors and I'd rake their leaves, I'd shovel their snow, I'd wash their cars, anything I could do to make a few bucks. And then when I was 14 years old, my parents decided we were going to move. So we moved down here to South Florida. And I've been in this North Miami Beach area, Aventura area now, ever since. That's amazing. And yeah. did your father instill in you? that work ethic to go out and shuffle driveways and do some landscaping for the neighbors? Or was that totally an idea that you came up with? You know, that's a great question. Uh, my dad was a great role model in a sense, and he taught me a lot of lessons. And, you know, I tell people this too. And I think I even made a video saying that mentors and parents don't realize the lesson they're teaching their kids and their nieces and nephews, but by what they're doing, they're following it. And what I mean by that is, uh, my dad graduated college. He was an engineer. And his first job that I knew from my dad, he was always an engineer. And he did the layout designs of interior warehouses, mostly for grocery stores, but for their fulfillment centers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was 79, 80, 81. I can't recall exactly. But, you know, he was a father. Back then, only one person worked. He worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had an older brother. And my dad got laid off. You know, he went to work every day and had no job. So he had to get creative. And my dad loved cars. So what my dad started doing was he'd buy a car, fix it up himself and start selling it out of the house because the economy was bad just to make a living. Yeah. But I watched my dad with all this entrepreneurial way. And then from there, he started getting into the car business. Then he owned new car dealerships, used car dealerships. And, you know, he thrived for many years. But I watched him go from a point of struggle. And instead of just rolling over and saying, I give up, I quit. He just got creative and started selling cars out of the back of the house and doing whatever he could to survive to bridge the gap. So I guess I was very, very fortunate to have those kind of values instilled in me without necessarily being sat down and taught to me. I just learned it from watching. That's amazing. So yeah. you just picked it up from their, his actions and then started doing it yourself. Yep. And how was it that you started developing and when did you get into real estate? All right, another great question. So because I watched my dad, let me, I'll bring myself back to the college days. When I finished college, it was the mid 1990s. And mm. back then everybody wanted to be on Wall Street. That's when, you know, Michael Douglas had his movie, Wall Street, everybody wanted to be that. And there was a lot of money in that business, kind of like cryptocurrencies were a couple of years ago. So yeah. I went out and became a stockbroker and started becoming a stockbroker slash investment banker. And we were doing a lot of deals. And throughout the 90s, it was fantastic until 2000 when the tech bubble burst, which is kind of like we have kind of going on now. Yeah. But once I started making really good money, the lessons I learned from witnessing my dad and so many other people that like that, a job could be taken away from you mm. and couple that with the fact that I was always saying my job was 100% commission based. And I would always say, if I want to go out of town for a week, which I always say I never really did it back then, but if I had wanted to, I would earn zero. And that was not okay for me. So I was looking for all sorts of clever and creative ways to earn what now became trendy called cash flow. But back then I was just trying to earn some extra money. So I looked at everything from, I tell people, ATM machines. I looked at pay phones, which thank God I didn't buy into pay phone business, but anything that could give me residual income. And I decided on real estate. And 
back then, nobody wanted to own real estate in the 19, late 90s. I mean, this is after everything crashed. The market was terrible. Interest rates were 11, 12% and heading down, luckily, but bad. Yeah. So I saw this property. I had some money saved up and I bought my first property you know, in June of 1998. I still own that property today because my philosophy is I don't sell anything. And mm. I bought the property and to kind of answer a little further into the question, I didn't have any real estate experience. I wasn't a business owner but I just use common sense. And this is what I try to tell all new investors. And I preach this over and over is don't overcomplicate it. It was very simple. My property had real estate taxes to pay once a year, insurance to pay once a year, a mortgage to pay once a month, uh, a landscaper, the garbage company, the water. I, it was all pretty common sense. There was no QuickBooks for me to use. I literally had a checkbook and I'd open it up and I'd write my checks. I'd collect my, my uh, rents. I'd bring them to the bank. And that is how I got into the real estate business 25 plus years ago. And now many millions of square feet later, it's still the same. I mean, now it's computerized, so it's easier, but it's still the same kind of bills, same kind of progress over and over. It just gets larger. So investors shouldn't be scared to get involved. They should go out and get involved. It's a lot easier than you think to run a property. Real quick, guys, no ads here, just real stories. The only ask I have is you spread the word. Rate, review, or share this podcast. It may inspire someone out there to reach new heights. That's awesome. Yeah. And back when you were in, in those investment banker days and you were looking for real estate, who were your role models that helped you get that first commercial property and, and, and have an understanding of what to get in order to not lose money on your first deal? Well, you asked really good questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I never thought about that's the truth. I bought the property and I knew I didn't need to live off the property's income because I had my job. At the time I was 25, I was single. I had a rental apartment, one bedroom. Uh, I had a Jeep Cherokee. I didn't, I didn't need the money from the property. I didn't actually even think about the possibility of losing money. I was thinking about, I'm going to rent out the vacant spaces. I'm going to own it. And it's obviously going to pay me. So it wasn't a question of being blind and stupid. It was a question of, the reality is, why wouldn't it work? I would have had to have done a really bad job to make it not work. Now, of course, when I bought it, a lot of people would say, why are you buying real estate? Because the market is so bad. I didn't care about that. I just wanted to own real estate. And I knew when I bought it, I did not intend to sell it, flip it, you know, do anything. I always intended to keep it. And once the first one worked, it becomes very addicting. I said, well, now I got another and then another. And then, you know, then another one in another location. And it goes from there. As far as mentors go, I didn't have a mentor it, it, per se in real estate. My mentor was, I just wanted something to pay me when I was sleeping at night and real estate filled that void. That's awesome. And tell me about your first deal. What kind of asset type was it? Where did you get the equity to put into it? And what eventually was the value add that you did? Okay. So like every new investor, even going back today that you could meet right off the street, that's never done a deal. It was the same for me back then, 25 years ago, nothing changed. And what I mean is I located the property again, the market was really bad. So there was literally four sale signs out front. And the property I bought was a 13,000 square foot industrial warehouse on a busy street here in the area called state road seven. Mm -hmm. And it was all automotive related. And the guy built, I think it was, he, he owed the bank a million two, a million three, and he couldn't finish the project. So he went under, the bank took it over. They filled a couple of the spaces, but they just wanted to sell it because banks aren't in the real estate business. It was a Canadian bank called Gentra at the time. Mm -hmm. And they had it, the property listed for 600,000. Uh, I went back and forth and I bought it for 575. And I thought that I was like, I thought I made $25,000. I didn't really just supposed to negotiate so much, but yeah. uh, I bought it for 575. And when I figured out how much I was going to need with about 20% down, I wasn't even sure if I had it. What if there was more? I had never done a closing. So because I got a little scared, I literally applied for a bunch of credit cards. And I said, if I have to use cash advances off of credit cards, I would do that. So now I had like five credit cards, but I didn't use them. I didn't need to, luckily, because when you get to the closing, you do get credits for, you know, security deposits and things like that. But that's where the money from the first deal came. And when I bought it, just a, a good lesson for new investors too. I got to the real estate closing. Remember, I'm 25 years old. I don't own a business. I've never really done anything like this. And this savvy real estate attorney who was probably about 50 at the time asked me what my intentions were. And I said, I'm going to fill the property up. 
fill the vacancies, re-sign leases with the existing tenants because of the foreclosure, the leases were voided out. So re-sign the existing, sign new, fix the building up, and then I'm going to refinance it. And he literally laughed at me and said, that's not how easy real estate is, kid, you're going to learn. And I said, well, okay. And I remember going home going, I hope I didn't buy a mistake here. But it actually went as I thought it would go. And because I went out and grabbed all my friends, I hired my friends. We'd go there at night. We would paint the building, clean the units, you know, do the landscaping. I'd order pizzas and some beers and I'd pay them and you know, a few bucks, take them out. So I had cheap labor. We did just that. We refinanced the building six months later in December of that same year, and it appraised for 800000 I got 600000 out. I walked away from the closing table with all my money back, plus about, I don't know, it was like $10,000, $13,000 or so in my hand, and the property was throwing off $5,000 a month in free cash. So you better believe that January, oh. I was full steam ahead trying to find another one. Oh, my God. That is an amazing deal. Yeah. Yep. What was the interest rate on that loan? So the original loan that I got when I bought the property came in at 10% and everybody said that was a great loan. Like, wow, you're so lucky because it's coming off. Like I said, it was coming down from like 12, 13%. Yeah. And six months later, I refinanced it at 9% and I was patting myself on the back for saving one point. I was like, wow, I'm so lucky it's at 9%. And obviously in my career in 25 plus years, it's only gone down. Now it's gone back up, but that's how it was. That is awesome. <laughs> It, it really uh, speaks a lot to what the current market is because interest rates right now are 7 8%, oh, 6 yeah. if you're lucky. Yeah. So, you, you, in commercial, you won't even find 6 anymore. Maybe a couple of weeks ago, but at this point, you're way into the 7s. And I'm, seeing, I'm actually hearing about some jumbo loans in residential today hitting the 9s. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Um, so after you made money with that first deal, obviously, you got really excited to get your next deal. Did you over time build like a system and a process to get more of these deals? Nope. And again, it, it, it is just that simple. I literally didn't have a system, didn't have a blueprint. I just said, I gotta go find another property. So because I had one, I scoured that area thinking, well, this area works. And I found one literally a mile up the street. And then I bought that one. And that one was like $480,000. And I took the money that I had from the first property and put it down on the second property and went right back to work again. Same yeah. thing, just do it one more time. Yeah. And I promise every new investor out there, it gets so much easier to do it after you get the first one done because everything you're telling yourself and trying to talk yourself out of a deal and all the fear factors your friends are putting into and your family's putting into you, it all goes away after you do a deal. And all you have to do is look at people who've owned real estate for a long time and they'll tell you, if they're really investors, not flippers, because that's a different game, they'll yeah. tell you their biggest regret is they didn't start sooner. Yeah, that, that is awesome. Nowadays, do you still focus on the industrial? Or so that's you... a funny question because I started in industrial because back then in the 90s and 2000s, nobody wanted industrial property. So I would say 90% of my portfolio for the first 10 years was all industrial, almost entirely industrial. It was so easy to buy. In the last eight to 10 years, it's almost been entirely retail. So in the last two plus years, I've purchased about seven, 800,000 square feet of retail space. And I purchased 10,000 square feet of industrial. One little building. <laughs> That's all you can get because everybody wants industrial now. And a couple of years ago, nobody wanted retail because retail was, you know, retail was dead. Amazon was going to knock it out of business. So now that's starting to shift again. So we'll see where we go in the future. Yeah. That's interesting. So tell us, because I've heard some headlines from Blackstone, they pulled out all of their retail in 2015 and they've been focusing mainly on warehouses. And so the fact that you were in retail, can you tell us what it is that your strategy is different that makes it so that retail is a asset class that you can invest in long-term? I got to tell you, Julian, before I answer that question, I've done hundreds of podcasts you ask terrific questions. So thank you for that. It's fun to do this. <laughs> thank you so much. The first thing everybody has to understand is we're not Blackstone. You can invest in Blackstone. They're publicly traded, but we're not Blackstone. The cost of their money is virtually nothing. You can't compete with them in any capacity. So what they're doing, 
is, is so useless to what the small investor is doing, it's completely irrelevant. So they move out of asset classes and they can write off a multi-billion dollar loss if they want and still make a fortune. Small investors, if you lose money in one deal, you can be wiped out. So we don't have that luxury. And believe me, I love John Gray and Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone. They're great, but they're so far removed from any normal investor. I mean, they have, they have like, well, I think a half a trillion dollars worth of real estate that what they do, it doesn't really matter. They are going to buy the most premier class A beautiful centers on Maine and Maine, and nobody's going to compete with them. And in the shopping center world, there's companies like that too, like the Kimco's of the world. I mean, I can't compete with them. Where the investor like myself does very well is we come take the stuff that they would never buy. I'll buy the, the 50,000, the 70,000. Heck, I'll buy a 10,000 square foot strip center that was built in 1980 that I'm going to fix up. Those guys won't touch it because the problem is it costs more to get involved than it would ever be worth. And unless they could buy it in scale and buy 500 of those centers, they won't buy it. So I'm able to always pick up deals because institutions don't want them. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So they're always looking about the scale. How can I pick up 500 of these at a time? And right. it's just not cost effective for them. So that's where you come in and you come take what they don't like and you can still make a fortune from it. And you do. That's right. Then none of these funds, not just Blackstone, we can go across the board. None of them go buy a single asset unless that asset's, you know, a billion dollar office building, but they're not equipped to even go buy like we live in Florida. They're never going to go buy one public shop. Even if it's brand new, it was built a few weeks ago, it's a $70 million deal. It's too small for them. They can't do it because their cost of moving people around is too expensive. So unless they can buy 50 centers at once, they're not going to do it. But the smaller investor, that's where they come and grab this stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us, how do you see the market right now in South Florida or, or wherever you invest? I only deals in Florida. So we have properties up and down the coast from Broward County, and we go all the way up to Jacksonville. And I love Florida. I stay in Florida. My philosophy is I like to be able to get in my car in the morning, drive to a property, and be home for dinner, even if it's a late dinner. That gives me an edge. I don't really add any value to a property. I know I know how to buy a property in you know, Minnesota, but I don't really see why. There's so many great properties in Florida. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not great deals in Minnesota. So if I lived in Minnesota, I would be working in Minnesota. But your edge is being local to your properties. Once you remove that and you have to you know, be a plane ride away and it's a two-day experience, you're not really going to be as effective. And you don't really know the market. So I stay away from that. And Florida is a great state, so we're very lucky. And I think that South Florida as a whole from, say, Port St. Lucie, which is, say, about 100 miles north of the Fort Lauderdale Airport south, the economy is so strong and so much tourism coming in from different countries. We're pretty protected. And I'm not saying safe, but we're a lot more protected than saying if I lived in, you know, Cleveland, Ohio. So we have a lot of great things going on here down here in South Florida. That's awesome. So this is mainly where you focus on from Port St. Lucie all the way to Broward County. And almost exclusively, yeah. What kind of cap rates are in these areas that makes it attractive for you? Well, now here's another one that, that investors need to watch. Don't worry about what the cap rate is. Worry about what you could do with it. If every deal I bought was predicated on a cap rate, I'd buy a third of the properties I buy. An investor such as myself who has to add value because I'm not going to buy the center. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but if it has the brand new grocery store with Chipotle and Starbucks and, and you know stretch zone, you don't need me. Anybody could buy that. For that, I recommend just go buy a publicly traded stock. But I go out and buy the value-add centers. So it could really be a 5 or 6% return when I'm buying it. But I know I could re-tenant it, renovate it, reposition it, repurpose the whole center. And then all of a sudden it's 10, 11, 12%. But I have to put some work into it. So the cap rate going in is not so important to me. Yeah, yeah that makes the sense. The upside is, yeah. Well, let's talk about the upside. What has been the biggest moneymaker that you've done in one deal? So many deals I've done in 25 plus years, it's hard to pick one that I've done. Uh, I can tell you the thing I kicked myself the most for the ones I haven't done that I should have bought that I talked myself out of. But there's so many ways to make money in a deal. I can't say it's one particular thing. 
And the other thing for me is I don't sell my properties. So if I can move the valuation, say from 5 million to 8 million, it doesn't really do anything for my ego or, or my head because I'm not going to sell it. So I don't feel that money. It's there. It's great. I'm getting the cash flow based on that asset, but I don't really cash out. So I don't feel like I score. Yeah, that's awesome. And you mentioned something about you really kick yourself about the ones you didn't buy. So can you tell us how to spot that deal that, that or, or how to spot not a deal to let go of? I've had so many deals over the years that I could have bought and one little thing turned me one way or the other or someone kind of talked me out of it. But like those are the deals you remember. And almost all of them, I'd probably say, well, now because the market's gotten better, it's easy to say that, but almost all of them would have been good purchases at the time. And I've made some foolish decisions. And I'll give you an example of what a new investor will do. I remember it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, there was a woman from Israel selling an enterprise rent-a-car lot right down the block from some of my properties. And her position was she wanted 250000 and she would finance it with 10% down. I offered her $225,000, and she said yes. We went back and forth on the contract. Now, remember, I was buying this property with $25,000 down. I wasn't making a fortune, but it was an enterprise, which is a great tenant. And it was right by all my other properties. And she came back and said, I changed my mind. I want 235. And I was so mad oh. that she would do this to me. I wasn't even thinking about it being 10000 or or $1,000 more down. I said, I'm not budging. I won't buy it. So I didn't come up with $1,000 more and I lost that property that I'm telling you the owner of it today would not sell it for a million and a half dollars. And Enterprise is still the tenant. And Enterprise built a whole new building there. And I said, I lost it for $1,000. So that was stupidity. And I let myself, my ego get in the way by saying, I'm not paying more. We had a deal. Be flexible. You got to get the deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. How, how do you keep yourself humble when doing deals so that you continue to have that edge and not lose out on opportunities? One thing about me I don't have yachts. I don't have jets. I don't have anything like that. I don't care about that. I love the real estate. So I actually do what I love to do. I take all my money from real estate and buy more real estate. And I love teaching. As I said, we'll talk about my book soon, but like I love teaching real estate and giving back. So I don't do real estate because I want to go buy things or I want to show off. I buy real estate because I really love the game. I love serving my tenants. I love going out. Even this morning, I was out with contractors and tenants at my properties and I'll always do that. We have about 30 people in my company that work with us, you know, between property managers, leasing agents, and accounting. So I have my choice now to do anything I want in the company, but my favorite part is still working with the tenants. And you know what? When you realize the value you're adding in people's lives by the little improvements you make at a center and how you see these people with their children and their children are growing up and I watch them go from babies to going off and getting married. When you're part of that, it'll keep you humble because you are adding a great value to the you know, society. It's not just your own pocket it's you know you're adding value to these people it's thousands of families you're helping that's awesome yeah, yeah. that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot the relationships with the tenants yeah can, can you tell us about some ways that you help the tenants in there succeed so that they can have a prosperous business well i won't take full credit my team at current capital is amazing at this and one of the things we do because again we're at our property so we have full control we lease and manage our own properties as well as some third-party accounts but we'll do everything so i'll give you an example like when covid hit we have a lot of tenants that maybe aren't as sophisticated as fortunate as we are with technology or some of the young people in my office who could figure everything out on their iphone but not only was the government giving away a fortune and money to these tenants, the local cities were too. So we would literally go with laptops and iPads and my people would go sit down with them in their locations, helping them apply for grants, showing them how to get it, showing them how to fill out these applications, how to apply for it. We would also go, if there's grants, like a lot of cities offer improvement grants for the interior units. So we'll go meet with the tenants again, show them how to apply. And just the other day, one of my tenants told me, thank you. You know, he got $5,000 and he put a new <laughs> this property. So we're always doing things like that. In addition to helping the tenants, we're always making improvements to help them. So if I know that Mary owns a nail salon over here and something she's doing is working great, I would never affect Mary's business, but I'm going to go tell all of my nail salon people, do you know what Mary's doing that's working great? Mm -hmm. Or if I know one place is charging X for something, 
and the other one's charging way too low. I'll tell them, you need to go out and do some market research because your price is too low. So we help the tenants any way we can. We're not just about collecting a rent check and moving on. Yeah, that's awesome. What have you thought about that's important to you when you were picking your significant other? <laughs> you got to find someone who's aligned with your values. So that doesn't mean like my wife has very little interest in buying real estate. She's not in the real estate business, but she understands what I do and she respects what I do and she supports what I do. So I'm able to go to work and I know how to support. She's not going to expect me to come home and use my money to buy all sorts of crazy things. She knows that my money goes back into real estate. Uh, but if you don't have a support system in a wife or a husband or a partner, you got a, a challenge there of a teammate because if they want to be spending the money on this and you want to be investing, something's got to give and that's a problem. So picking a partner is very, very important. Make sure your values are aligned. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. And when it comes to the relationship itself, what are some things that you have added into it to make it so that you guys are nurturing each other and your endeavors? Well, I think we teach each other a lot. So my wife is like a very public person and she's out there all over the place and I'm more of a private citizen. Uh, so she's gotten me to come out more and do more public things like how I do all these you know, Instagram videos. I got to social media because of her, you know, I think when I met her, I had like, you know, 150 followers, you know, I, I, so she's brought me out in that world uh, and vice versa. She also owns a beauty bar in Surfside and her lease is up. And now she's asking me for help. She's talking about rent comps and doing analysis and market studies. So just by being around me, she's learning a lot of real estate. And now she's actually thinking about buying a location versus re-renting hers because the lease is up in about eight, nine months. So we're learning from each other, which is terrific. And we add value to each other's lives that way too. Obviously in marital ways as well, but business-wise, we, we take what we both learn and push each other. That's awesome. Um, I, I really like the way that you mentioned that it is simple to get into real estate. You mentioned that you just have a couple of items on your list that you focus on every day and it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. What are some things that new investors can do in order to really stop that analysis paralysis so that they can get their first deal and have that dopamine or, or reward that you got when you got your first deal and got you started? Yeah. Some of my smartest friends probably are doing the worst in life because you become too smart. And, you know, you really have to learn how to keep things simple. And everybody's so worried about, as I said earlier, all the things that could go wrong and they forget about all the things that could go right. Just like in a relationship, like you brought up, everybody talks about, oh, you're going to get married, you can get divorced. You can, or maybe you could stay married and be happy. Like there is another side to the equation. But I find so many people do so much research and they'll read and they'll study and they'll do everything. They just won't pull the trigger. And that's what's motivated me to really go out there and do podcasts like this. And I take tons of phone calls every week and I have people come into my office all the time and I show them what we're doing. And I try and tell everybody, look, I was a kid who went to a local school. I went to a public school. I was never a good student per se. None of my teachers would say that I was one of their favorites. I wound up in community college. It didn't take a rocket science degree to figure out real estate. And it doesn't have to be real estate. You just got to find something that's going to pay you for your future because we're responsible for our futures. So you could invest in different things. You can invest in other companies. You could open different businesses. But with real estate, it really is pretty easy because you know every month what the bills are going to be. And if you're in South Florida, you know when your ACs are going to break because it's hot in the summertime. You know when rainy season is. You could forecast all this stuff in advance. Barring something as crazy as, say, COVID, you can kind of see what's going to happen in the future with real estate. It's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just don't complicate things, right? That's what you would say to the people. Keep it simple. Keep it, keep it simple. It really is that easy. And I'm telling you, I could get any 18-year-old and teach them how to run a shopping center or a warehouse. No problem. There's about five or six bills to pay and collect rents. It's not that hard. It's really not. It's the fear of getting started. It's the fear... And it, it's the pressure a lot of these people's families put on them that you're going to lose money. You're going to do Maybe you will, but maybe you'll learn so much. You'll reinvest the second time and do great. But it's the fear that people put in their own heads of what could go wrong and they avoid it. You know, it's they're afraid of that risk. But without that risk, it's never going to happen. 
Yeah. That, thank you. That, that's awesome. I hey, real quick, guys. Boost your productivity with timeboxing. Even big names like Elon Musk swear by it. We've got a cool sheet to help you out. Grab yours at bit.ly slash timebox sheet. If you don't like it, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. I want to talk about something that obviously motivates you, which is the purpose why you're doing these podcasts. What is it that you want the younger generations to understand to make money, you know, or have a better life? I'm going to give you this answer in a couple of minutes because I want to go back. So what I first started doing to get back is I started bringing interns into my office over the summer and they were all high school and college kids. And I loved it. I said, I love watching these kids and their kids to me. So watching them learn and they're so interested and you can see which ones really love it, which ones are just kind of maybe one day I'll own real estate. And then I started watching them actually go out and do it and become realtors. And some of them are doing fantastic already in just a few short years. So I decided I got to reach more people. So I started doing the podcasts. And from the podcast, I got the idea to write a book. And that's one thing we were talking about. So I wrote this book, Keeping It Real on Commercial Real Estate. And it's my story of real estate. And it's not just how to become an investor in real estate. It tells you how you could invest whether you want to buy into REITs, you want to buy into funds, you want to buy a limited partner, or you want to invest the way I do, which is buying and owning and operating your own real estate. But so nobody thought I had intentions to try and make myself wealthier. I give all the proceeds to charity. So all the money made off this book goes to charity. So I won't make anything. So I preach this. From the book, I came across these great guys at this site called the School of Hard Knocks. And they met me and said, Todd, you really need to be doing some social media and like all these lessons you should share with people. So literally just over a month ago, we launched, they came to my office one day for like an hour and a half. They filmed it and they're great because they do all my editing. They do everything for me. So I'm so grateful to these guys and they launch it. I don't even know it's even being launched. They have control of it and they're using this stuff and the feedback's been tremendous. I'm able to help so many people and reach them. And to answer the question, it's very addicting helping people. There's phases in life and when you're young or new to something, you got to be in the learning phase. And then after that, you're going to go into the earning phase. And your greatest earnings years in any month of is going to be your mid-40s into your 50s. And when you're younger, you're going to try as hard as you can. You're going to do so much, but you won't believe the value of age and, you know, and, and networking and relationships will come when you're in your 40s and 50s. Because all of a sudden, the guy you knew who was the bank teller at 25 is now the president of a bank. And that's your guy. He knows about deals. So it gets better. But then as you get past that, you want to start giving back. And I always wanted to give back to the less privileged than the younger who aren't getting this education in school, because to the best of my knowledge, nobody's teaching this stuff. And there's no reason why everybody shouldn't be buying it. And I see so many people my age, I'm 50, who say, I want to buy a property. And I said, my God, why didn't they do it at my age? So I'm trying to get people to do it at a much younger age. I'm not selling anybody real estate. I'm not trying to be a broker. I'm telling them, go find a property because if you buy one property and you're 30 years old and you screw everything else up for the rest of your life for 20 years, but just pay that one property off, you'll always be okay. You won't be rich, but one property, you could be into retirement. You'll be able to have a roof over your head. Now, keep buying them and be more successful. You'd be mega rich, but it really just takes one. And everybody who's watching your show knows somebody who has a grandmother or a parent or someone who owns one little 6,000 square foot strip center and they live off that now. They just bought it at a younger age. So the key is to start as young as you possibly can. And that's why I want to do this. I'm trying to push your generation to start younger. That's, a, that's awesome. I really yeah. love that purpose, it, that, that motivation. It's, it really is uh, great to, to meet you and be doing this podcast with you. Likewise. And for, for the person that, the young person, you know. Hey, real quick, guys. No ads here, just real stories. Are you thinking of owning multifamily properties? Let's do it together. Join my multifamily cohort. We'll learn from experts and help each other buy that first multifamily property. Head over to multifamilycohort.com. What is a good first deal for them? You know, maybe in, in deal size um, to start looking. You know, I get that question all the time. People say, what kind of property should I look at? Every asset class will work. Just make sure you love it. So I never liked residential. And the reason I didn't like residential isn't because it's not very great asset. It's because to me personally, I said, how in the world am I going to evict 
the single mother and her three kids in December. Like, I don't have the heart to do that. And I know business is business. They don't pay the rent. They got to go. But I'm just not going to do that. So I don't feel good about myself. So I've always stuck to commercial. What I found is with retail and industrial, if unfortunately a business isn't working, generally the tenant will give you back the keys and leave because they can go out and get a job and make money. But if a person's in a home and they have no money, they're not exactly out looking for a new home. They have no way to move or they'd be paying you the rent. So there's nothing wrong with multifamily, you know, residential. There's nothing wrong with office. Every asset class works, but just make sure you're building into a class that you like and that you're proud of owning. The second thing you got to do is I would rather everybody buy multi-tenant. Some people want to go out and buy a single family house. My concern with that is you go out and you buy a single family house and you're getting your rent every single month. At some point, that tenant's leaving and you're going to zero. And I hate that. I very rarely buy single tenant buildings ever now either, but you got to buy multifamily or you got to buy multi-use or you got, it has to have a few. I would rather someone buy a 3000 square foot building, but have four tenants in it. That is much better because you're going to lose tenants from time to time. Some are going to do so well, they got to move. Some are going to go bad. They have to leave. So you're going to have turnover, but you'll always have some cash flow. You're never going to be hundred percent empty. So those are the things you got to look for. Hmm. Got it. So being, having a multi-tenant strip center is something you recommend so that you can de-risk the situation by having more tenants because it could be, it could be, it could be by a, a duplex or a triplex or like a four unit apartment building. It could be a warehouse with three units, four units. It could, it could be an office with four. I just want to make sure people know that it's much better to have multi-tenant because generally you only need about half the tenants to cover your bills. Now, some people, you know, they have enough money. You know, I actually have one client that we have will only buy very large warehouses, single use, and he buys them around 20, 30, 40,000 feet. We don't own them. We just manage them for him. But his answer is he has about 15 of them. So he looks as all 15 now. So if one or two are empty, the other one's covered. But when you're getting started, he's very wealthy. But when you're getting started, if you have one and it's empty, I'm not sure where that money is coming from. And even if you have a great job and you say, it's great, I have the money. I still don't recommend it because I don't want you taking the money from your great job to be covering the expense of this building. I want the building to pay for the building. That's what you got to look for. So multi-tenant de-risks it. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, when it comes to the, the person who has to put the equity inside the building, did you use creative financing? Did you come up with the money? Do you recommend going to friends and family? What do you recommend to do in order to get that down payment if it's needed or all of the above? Yeah, I've done all of the above. I recommend all of the above. Uh, I tell people that years ago, uh, it was like in maybe 2000, 2001, everybody was buy properties with no money down. I said, that doesn't work. And I'm a big reader. I read a ton of books. So I went and got a book on how to buy real estate with no money down. I followed the blueprint exactly. And I bought a property with no money down. Uh, I told you if my first deal, I was getting credit cards that would have probably been 20% interest to make sure I had the money to close because I wasn't sure I'd have it all. There's good debt and bad debt. And any debt you're going to take on to buy an asset is good debt. I'm not out buying boats and cars and airplanes. So that's bad debt. So get the money any way you can in the beginning. If you, ha if you have the luxury of borrowing it from friends or family, borrow it. If you want to make them partners, make them partners. If you, you, know, you got to put a home equity loan on your house, do it. Whatever you have to do, you're not spending the money. So therefore, the debt that you're taking or borrowing is going into an asset. So it's not burnt money. And then the property, you're going to get the appreciation off that. So you'll benefit, should benefit tenfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Is there such thing as a syndication? Sure. Retail strip centers? Mm -hmm. You could syndicate anything. You could syndicate a... A Dairy Queen, you could syndicate anything. All the syndication basically means is that there's going to be one general partner and a bunch of limited partners. The limited partners will put in X amount of dollars that you ask for, they agree to, and they'll have no say in the management, but they'll have no risk either. The general partner will assume all the risk. And there's nothing wrong with doing deals that way. I do those deals as well. There's a million ways to do deals. The key is do deals. The key is to do deals. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> as, as simple as it sounds, um, we just got to get, yeah. get out there and look for deals, right? Get out there and look for deals. Don't worry about where the money's coming from. But I tell people to when you're out there, let people know what you're doing and start talking to people because you'll be so amazed that, you know, 
you could be 25 years old and say, I don't really have a lot of access to money, but I understand real estate. And assuming you want to buy real estate, you'll be out there and you may tell your friend on the golf course, I'm looking to buy properties. And you know what? I need to raise some money. He'll say, I don't have any money, but you know what? My aunt just sold her business and she's got a million dollars. She's looking to invest. If you tell people what you're looking to do, you'll be amazed at the resources that'll come your way. But don't be afraid to tell people what you're doing. If you don't tell anybody what you're doing, nobody knows you need any help. You can help people this way by going out and raising money for them to find deals. But don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask the seller to give you a second position loan and hold back some of the money on that property if you need that to get started. Don't be afraid. The only one that's not going to budge is the bank because they're regulated. So the bank's rules are the bank's rules. But there's a million ways to get equity. Getting the deal is the key. Getting the deal is the key. Thank you, Todd. And who has the deals? Who do we reach out to to get the deals? You got to go out and hunt for deals. It's a fishing game, I tell you. You really got to work hard. Uh, the best way to get deals is to network. Same thing, put yourself out there. Start talking to brokers and tell them the truth that I haven't bought a deal yet, but I'm looking for this. Know what you want, of course, first, but I'm looking to buy three to 5,000 square feet, something under $600,000 as a startup property, something that's a fixer upper, something I could you know, run myself and start talking to brokers. Now is a great time for that. And this is the best thing about this market is that everybody in the real estate business has plenty of time because there's really not a lot of transactions taking place because of the interest rate market and the economy is uncertain. So brokers have spare time and they want to talk to people and they want to meet people as well. So you put that out there. When this comes across their desk, they're going to give it to you because they know you're looking for it. They got to know you're sincere and real though and you can get it closed. By the time you find these deals advertised on sites like LoopNet or MLX or CoStar, everybody's seen it who needed to see it. You're just going through what everybody else has passed on. So a lot of my deals will come from brokers like that. Also, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call owners. Owners' numbers are so accessible with internet nowadays. You can look up the property, see who owns it, see who the corporation is, see who runs the corporation and find that owner. Call them. You're not selling them anything. You're not telemarketing. You want to buy their property. Nobody will be mad at you for trying to buy their property. I can promise you that. They may not be interested. Most won't. They're not going to hang up on you and yell at you. You're not selling them you know, a vacuum cleaner. You're talking about an asset they own. So go out and find the owners and give them calls. Don't be afraid. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it really is. Um, when you talk to someone that has experience, you can tell that by the conviction that they're saying the things that they say, that it is really true that way. And it really does resemble that from you. Um, when... When people are calling brokers, you said to be honest. How can someone approach a broker so that they give them the time of day? But like I said, now brokers will give you the time of day because they have time in both residential and commercial. Find the brokers who generally have been selling the kinds of properties that you're interested in and just call them and tell them the truth and say, hey, look, my name is Todd. I don't own any properties in this area yet, but I'm looking to buy a few. Would you mind to meet me? Can I buy you a coffee at Starbucks? Can I come by your office and introduce myself? Make it accessible for them. Make it convenient for them. And they'll give you that time. Listen, I'm very busy. We run a huge company here, but many people come to my office because they make it convenient for me and they want to meet me and talk to me about real estate. I'll do it. My mentor did it for me and he's 10 times bigger than I am with about a $5 billion portfolio more. So people will help you if you make it accessible for them. Don't expect them to come meet you at your house and try and pitch you and sell you something. Let them know. I know where your office is in Hollywood. Even if it's a 45-minute drive, you say, I'm always in that area. Can I swing by one day and just shake your hand? People aren't going to say no to this because they get paid for transactions. So they'll want to meet you, find out who you are, and build a relationship. And then when they have deals, they'll utilize those and give you a call. But go after them. And after you meet the people, keep in touch also. You could go to networking events too. There's always realtor association events and things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Todd, you talked about your mentor. How did you get your mentor? Well, I didn't have a, a mentor per se. I had more people I would look up to for a long time. And then years back, I was at a real estate conference in Las Vegas. And a guy, his name is Gary Rappaport. I, I love Gary. And he was giving a speech and he had, I don't know, 500 people in the room and he's talking about investment properties and real estate. 
And he does exactly what I do. But like I said, he's been doing it longer and he's huge. I think, I think he may have like eight, $9 billion worth of assets under management now. And after his speech, he said, what I've done is I've left cards in the four corners of the room. And he goes, and what I know from experience is at the end of this year, all the cards will be gone. And he goes, none of you are going to call me, which always surprises me, but I'm always available if anybody wants to call me or email me. And I looked at this guy and I said, I got to meet this guy. So of course I took a card, but I followed him like a stalker. And I literally went downstairs where he had his booth and I watched him in a meeting and I'm sitting there and I know a lot of people. So they'd come by and be like, what are you doing? I said, I'm watching that guy. They said, why? So I said, I got to meet that guy. And I went up to him the second he had a break, someone was walking out. I ran right up to him. I said, Mr. Rappaport, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. My name is Todd Napola. I'm from Hollywood, Florida. I do what you do just on a much smaller scale. I said, sir, if I come up to your office, would you let me take you to lunch so I can pick your brain a little? And he said, well, where are you coming from? I said, from Florida. He goes, but I'm in Virginia. I said, I'll fly up. He's like, well, if you fly up, I'll buy you lunch. And I said, whatever it takes. I don't think he thought it was coming. The next weekend, I was on a plane to Virginia. I stayed in Washington, D.C., which is beautiful. And I went to see him. And this man with billions and billions of dollars worth of assets didn't spend 30 minutes with me. He spent the whole day with me. And we got to walk through his property management leasing company, which is the exact same thing I do. But we have 30 employees. He has 150. And he introduced me to everybody. We had the greatest time. We went to lunch. And he did let me buy him lunch. He gave me his book. And we keep in touch still to this day. And I see him. I just saw him in May. And he's fantastic. And I don't call on him a lot, but I often think, what would Gary do? And that helps me make decisions. But that's how I got my first real life mentor. That's awesome. That's such a great story. When someone is looking for a mentor, and for example, this guy made it accessible to you, right? Mm -hmm. He made it so that he knew people weren't going to do it. But you, you were the different person who did it. What? When someone is not in a position like Gary, who, who wants to give the mentorship to someone, how can someone reach out to someone to mentor to get them to be their mentor? Well, I believe Gary would have helped everybody if they all wanted help because he's that guy. He spends a lot of time helping because he does have a lot of people who go to him. But I think people underestimate the fact that people want to help and give back, of course, on their terms. I just don't think people ask. They just don't ask for the help that they want. I think we're all so intimidated. I mean, it's like the high school kid who's scared to ask their older brother in college for help on college applications. I mean, we're all always so intimidated to ask for help. And what people don't realize is when you find people who are very, very successful in a certain field, they could be the top doctors, top real estate, top anything. They want to give back which is why you'll notice these people are always speaking at you know, conventions and stuff. They don't get paid for that. They don't need to. Here's a convention down here in Miami I'm going to in a few months. It's the Real Deal Convention. And George Perez, who is the founder and owner of Related, is going to give a speech. The man is worth billions of dollars. He's going to give the speech for free. He has no value in doing this other than the fact that he's in his 70s and he wants to teach and educate other people. So that's what he's going to do. These people are accessible. And I know a little bit about George. I know enough to know that if someone really reached out to him and wanted to meet him and it was a qualified person, he's going to meet you. He's going to help because building another building for a guy who's built, I think, 15,000 units in the state of Florida alone, building another building doesn't excite him anymore. Well, you know what excites people like that? Seeing somebody else come, get help and go do it. And that's what motivates me. When people come to me and then they say, Todd, I finally did it. I had a friend took him 20 years. He's like, I bought my first deal. And he's like, I couldn't thank you enough. I wish I did it sooner. I feel a tiniest little bit responsible. And that's very motivating. So just ask people for help. Not all of them will do it, but I guarantee if you ask three or four, one's going to. Yes, Todd, thank you so much. And for the person that is going to do this, what's a message that they could do or what's a way for them to write about themselves? so that the person can see if indeed they are worth their time. You know, it, it's in the ass. So obviously you, you gotta be aligned with what the person does. So if I wanna go meet a top doctor and I know nothing about medicine and I'm not interested in that career, but I just wanna meet them because they're well-known, they probably aren't interested. So if you are aligned in that field, let the person know. So if I was say a new residential realtor and I wanted to pivot into commercial, I would say, 
I've been doing this for three years. I love residential real estate. It's been my dream to pivot into commercial. I'm a little reluctant. I would like to ask you a few questions. Could we meet for 15 minutes? And I'm gonna give you three hours, but can we meet for 15 minutes and I could ask you some questions? I'm happy to stop by your office anytime and bring you a coffee. By being nice, the person will probably say yes, but you should be aligned with them. So if you have a small plumbing company and you wanna meet the top plumbing supplier, Tell them who you are, what you've done, and you want to get to that level. That person wants to see you come up. That person wants to see you come up a lot more than your family and friends do too because they're already there. And they want everybody to come because they're going to keep going higher or they're going to leave the business and go retire. So ask for help. Yeah. That's awesome, Todd. Todd, thank you. And for the people that are listening and want to see you, where can they see you on social media? Where can they see you? in your office if that's what they want to do. <laughs> well, on social media, we started doing these videos. We're launching like one every single day. So it's uh, Instagram is life according to Todd. So my name, Todd Napola. Uh, and I know they're setting it up to YouTube. But we're going to do some longer videos too. Now we're working on that. Like I said, I've only been doing that about a month. Certainly you should get my book, keeping it real on commercial real estate and get it on Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, anywhere online. They'll ship it to you. Uh, but if people really want to reach out to me and they have valid real estate concerns and questions they want to know, I'm always available. They could call my office at 954-966-8181 or shoot me an email if you prefer. It's Todd, T-O-D-D, at cc-reg.com. Send me an email, give me a call, DM me, whatever you want, reach out to me. I could assure you I help hundreds and hundreds of people in real estate with real estate tips and advice. And I'm happy to help anyone I can. That's awesome, Todd. Thank you so much. This has been one of the greatest interviews that I've done. So I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. And uh, thank you guys for listening and uh, hope to have Todd on in the future. So Todd, if, if you enjoyed this and we do well, hopefully we can get another podcast with you. We'll definitely do it again. It's been an absolute pleasure. You asked some great questions and I wish everybody the best of luck. Go out there and get some deals. <laughs> thank you, Todd. All right, guys. A-List Nation, take advantage of those willing to connect who have been there, done that. Please act on the value shared today. By joining us, you're building yourself to deliver lasting value. Keep up that A-List energy and until next time.